On December 15, 1967, the Silver Bridge that connected Point Pleasant, West Virginia to Gallipolis, Ohio, collapsed and it took 46 people's lives. The collapse over the Ohio River was attributed to a microstress, a small, almost unnoticeable crack that caused the catastrophic event. The small fracture it had formed in part on the bridge because of um, some poor design flaws, but the, the fracture allowed salt and water to get into the component that eventually failed, and the shift in the weight of the, uh, of the bridge went to the other components that also failed as well. And it's hard to imagine that this catastrophic event led to one small crack, or began with one small crack, and took 46 lives. For anyone without an engineering degree, Prior to the collapsing of the bridge in 1967, I wasn't even around in 1967, but, but if I was to say I don't have an engineering degree and I'm just reading the history about this bridge, I'm, I'm going to say this question right here. What harm could a microstress possibly do to a bridge that spans 2,000 feet or 600 meters across the Ohio River? I mean, that seems like a logical question, does it not? What harm can a microstress, like a hairline crack, what harm could it do to a bridge that's as mighty as 2,000 feet or 600 meters spanning the waters? Well, obviously, we know from history and experience, even without an engineering degree, we know what the answer is, right? It was catastrophic failure because of the one design flaw in that one component that was so important to the stabilization of the bridge. The same question and the same logic could be applied to a person who misquotes the Bible. Let me ask a couple of questions this morning. What harm could there be in misquoting one Bible verse out of thousands of Bible verses that we have in our Bible? What, what possible harm could come from just misquoting one verse in the entire Bible? What damage could possibly be done by misquoting this one verse in the entire Bible, or a verse in the entire Bible? Well, from history and experience, we know, right? We know that to misquote one Bible verse can cause greater damage than one micro-stress on the Silver Bridge. As we continue our sermon series on the most misquoted Bible verses, we are once again looking at another popular Bible verse that is commonly misquoted in Scripture. It is found in Romans 8.28, Romans 28, and it's written by the Apostle Paul, and we know that God causes everything to, say this with me, church, together, work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. Romans 8.28 is a verse that is often misused or misquoted in the toughest times of life. When you are in your toughest moments, we often misquote Romans 8.28. Have you ever used Romans 8.28 as a source of comfort to yourself or to someone else? Say someone else is going through a terrible time in their life. Have you ever quoted Romans 8.28 to them? Has anyone ever quoted Romans 8.28 to you when you find yourself down and out and, and you're finding yourself in a very challenging situation? Has anyone ever come up to you and said, oh, hold on, Romans 8.28, and quoted the verse? Have you ever experienced a significant loss and boom, someone steps up and says, Romans 
But they normally don't give you all of Romans 8.28. They only give you a part of Romans 8.28. And what is the part that they give to you? It's this part. All things work together for the good. Boom, that's it. That's all they quote. Have you ever been fired from a job? And someone quotes Romans 8.28 to you, and it's the part of the verse that says, all things work together for good. Hold on, it's going to get better. Have you ever felt like you were in a dark valley and the light just wouldn't come on and you didn't know where to turn or what to do and someone quotes Romans 8.28 to you or you've quoted it to someone who is in a dark valley? Hey, hold on, 8.28, Romans. All things work together for the good. It's a verse that we quote a lot, especially in the tough moments of life. And it is a a verse that we, we quote a lot, at least part of the verse, when we have a lot of dote in our life and a lot of questioning moments where we say all things work together for the good. But are we really quoting the verse accurately? That's the question. Are we really quoting the verse accurately? There are a few things that we should know about Romans 8.28 before we answer that question. And this is the first thing that we know is that Romans 8.28 was written for the believer, Christ follower. It was written specifically for the believer in Christ following. There are other passages in the Bible and other verses in the Bible that are they're applied for everyone, all of mankind, everyone around the world they apply to. But Romans 8.28 is very specific. And it may seem narrow-minded this morning, but it's not. This verse and this chapter was specifically written with an audience in mind. And the audience was those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, have repented of their sins, and they are following Jesus. That's This verse is written for those individuals. Paul was writing for those who had repented of their sins and for those who had committed their life to Jesus Christ. Paul was actually writing to individuals who were all in for Jesus. Are you familiar with that terminology? They were all in for Jesus. They were holding nothing back. They were all in. At age 35, Christian psychologist and researcher Dr. Jamie Atten was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, colon cancer, that had spread to his pelvis. And he later was interviewed, and this is what he said, For six months, whenever I asked for a prognosis, all my oncologist would say was, I can't tell you that you're going to be okay. Jamie, it's too early to tell. If there's anyone that you want to see or any place you want to go to, now is the time to do it. Cancer wasn't my first disaster in my life. My family and I had moved to South Mississippi six days before Hurricane Katrina came ashore. But this cancer disaster was different. There was no opportunity to evacuate, as I did before Katrina made landfall. This time, the disaster was striking within, and he said, I was the walking disaster. Aiton learned that the key to traumatic situations involved what he called for a person and for himself, spiritual surrender. Spiritual surrender. He goes on to say this, One day, all of a sudden, I dropped to my knees and I prayed the most challenging prayer of my entire life. Instead of continuing to ask for God to heal me, I asked that God would take care of my wife and children if I didn't make it. And this is what he went on to say. This was the hardest prayer I had ever prayed. For the first time in my life, I truly experienced spiritual surrender. 
I finally understood true spiritual surrender is far from passive. It is, say it with me, church, a willful act of obedience. He said, for the first time in my life, when I went down on my knees and I prayed a prayer to God, it was the first time that I experienced spiritual surrender. And then he goes on to say, it is a willful act of obedience. It is a willful act of obedience. Say that with me, church. It is a willful act of obedience. Paul was writing in Romans 8.28 to Christians who were living and practicing a willful act of Of what, church? Of obedience to Jesus. They were in a state of spiritual surrender. Paul is writing the book of Romans, chapter 8, and specifically Romans chapter 8, 28. He is writing to an audience that is believers. They are followers of Jesus Christ. They had repented of their sins, and they were willfully acting out and desiring that the Lord Jesus Christ have his way in their life and that they be obedient to God and they were spiritually surrendering their life to him and they were saying, whatever may come my way, I'm okay with it. To fully understand Romans chapter 8, verse 28, you must be, and I'm not trying to be harsh this morning, but to fully understand Romans chapter 8, verse 28, you must be a follower of Jesus. You must be a believer. You must have repented of your sins, and you must be following Jesus Christ, and you must be in a state of spiritual surrender that no matter what comes your way, no matter what you face, you are totally sold out, and you are all in for Jesus, and your life is surrendered to Him no matter what happens. He's, Jesus is the one that you follow. So my question is this morning, are you sold out to Jesus? Are you all in? Are you following him? Are you in a state of spiritual surrender in all areas of your life, no matter what challenge you may be going through? Do you have a willful act of obedience to Jesus Christ this morning? Are you living in that state? Because if you are not, you will never fully understand what Paul and God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is trying to express in Romans 8.28. It is for those who are following Jesus. What else do we know about Romans 8.28? Well, we know this, that God's primary objective in Romans 8.28 is redemption and restoration, not comfort. That makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because we, we want to put comfort above redemption and restoration almost every time in our life. But what we know of Romans 8.28 is this, that the objective is redemption and restoration for our personal life, not our comfort. Our comfort has no part of this equation. Glorifying Christ is Paul's objective over personal comfort. He is saying that it's your personal comfort, he's not really saying this, but he's more or less saying this, it doesn't really matter. Glorifying God is what really matters. Glorifying God above all else over everything that's going on in your life is the most important thing, not your personal comfort. You see, there's a theology in the Christian church today that objectifies personal comfort over glorifying God. That I will only glorify God if all the dots and all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. If everything lines up and things are going well in my life and the wind is blowing right and the sun is in my face, then I will glorify God because I have a personal comfort in my life. 
But when we don't have personal comfort in our life, we have no desire to glorify God. And Paul is writing in 828, he's saying, it doesn't matter about your personal comfort. Glorifying Christ is what matters the most. Your life and every situation that you go through is set out and designed to glorify Christ and to glorify God. You see, Romans 8.28 is not about God changing your loss or changing your grief or your struggle into a new opportunity or into something that is better than what you've lost or some better than what you're grieving or better than what you're struggling with. No, Romans 8.28 is about God using our circumstances for His divine good. Our circumstances for His divine good. I like what Bob Goff um, says his perspective on Romans 8.28 is. He said, Jesus never promised to eliminate all of the chaos from our life. He said He's bringing something to it. Think about that for a moment. God never promises in, his, in the Bible that he will eliminate all the chaos in our life. He said he's bringing something to our chaos. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate it. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about Christmas. I'm talking about the Advent season. What was God's plan for our salvation? It was to bring something to our chaos. And what did God bring to our chaos, church? He brought Jesus. Jesus is the one that we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks. Born of a virgin in an animal storage facility in Bethlehem, to the cross in Jerusalem, to a dramatic resurrec resurrection three days later, to interceding on our behalf to God the Father. Jesus brought to us redemption and restoration to our hurting, confused, and chaotic lives. That's what Jesus does. The biggest struggle we seem to have with Romans 8.28 evolves around the word good. Let's look at it again. Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good. That's where we go off the rails. That's where we struggle with, a, with this whole verse and misquoting it. Is that word good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Before we even dive into the word good, we must first begin with the following three words that Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse, 20, um, verse 28. He said these three words, and we know. Say that with me, church. And we know. We know is used five times in the book of Romans. Paul uses it in Romans 2.2. He uses it again in Romans 3.19, again in 7.14, 8.22, and then in 8.28, where we're at this morning. Whenever Paul uses the statement, we know, five times in the book of Romans, he is attempting to bridge two thoughts or two landscapes. Perhaps you're wondering, well, what do we know this morning? What two thoughts is Paul trying to bridge in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? Well, good question. I always like how you ask such good questions at New Hope. There is no doubt we know a lot of things, and I'm not trying to insult your intelligence this morning. There's a lot of intelligence in this room and those who are watching online. There's a lot of knowledge in this room, and there's a lot of knowledge of those who are watching online this morning. I'm not out to insult your intelligence, but what do we know about Romans 8.28? That's the question. Here's what Paul was making known in Romans 8.28. We know this. We know this. Two things. That God is perfect. And that God's ways are perfect. 
Those are the two things he said we know. We know that God is perfect, and we know that his ways are perfect. How do we know God is perfect, and how do we know that the ways of God are perfect? Well, according to Paul, he makes this statement. He said, past experiences inform present challenges. Past experiences inform present challenges. Paul is bridging past experiences, 26 and 27, into 28. He said, and we know, what do we know, Paul? Well, it's based on 26 and 27. He is bridging these two landscapes together. Here's what he said in in 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 8. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our, what? In our weakness. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants to, to, to uh, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. Well, what is Paul saying here? He is saying this: that there are some dark times in our lives, there are some challenges in our lives, there are some griefs, grief and loss, and there's things that happen in our life that we go, I don't even know how to pray about this God. I don't even know what to do with this God. What am I gonna do? with this God and when we have repented and we are following Jesus Christ and we are believers of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit resides in us it is the Holy Spirit's job at that moment when we don't know what to pray for in that moment of weakness to take our groanings and to take our heart and he the Holy Spirit uses a language that we can't even express in the human language and takes it to God the Father, and it lines up with God's will for us, and, and the Holy Spirit is doing this work. Now, this is what you need to remember, be reminded of this morning. There is nothing you do in this process. Nothing. Except have the problem. Or the challenge. Or the, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. This is just like this weight on my shoulders. I don't know what to do with it. And it's the Holy Spirit activated and working in your life that takes this to God the Father. And this is what Paul says in verse 27. He said the, the following words, And the Father knows our all hearts, knows, and the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with what church? God's own will. Paul is saying we know that when life gets tough, the Holy Spirit is activated and working in our life and taking our burdens and cares and concerns to God the Father and making sure that in unity between God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and our life, it all meshes together. That it's all working for His glory, for His divine purpose that's where we find paul starting out in romans 8 28 and we know well what do we know well we know that god is working on our behalf through the holy spirit we know that when we don't even know how to pray or what to pray god is at work in us that he is lining up the holy spirit is lining up the will of the father to be exposed and used in our life that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And we know that God is perfect and that he is perfect in our past. He will be perfect in our what, church? Our present. God has been active in our past. Then we know that God will be active in our what? In our present. 
Paul knew the truth of those words because this is what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He said this, he said, And he did rescue us from mortal danger, past tense. God was at work. God showed up. The Holy Spirit took the groanings to God the Father. The will of the God came at work in our life. And he will rescue us again. So there is a past tense and there is a present tense. And there's a future tense. We have placed our confidence in him. And he will continue to do what, church? So how do we misquote Romans 8.28? Again, you ask another good question. It's this way. Romans 8.28 is not misquoted on the knowledge of the past. If you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, he's forgiven you of your sins, the Holy Spirit is at work in you, you know that God has moved in your past. You know that he has forgiven you of sin. You know that he has saved you, he has redeemed you, he has restored you, he has been at work in your life. You know that God has been at work in your life in the past. So Romans 8.28 is not misquoted on the knowledge of the past workings of God in your life, but on the good in the present. That's where we misquote it. Not on what God has done in the past, but what good is God doing in the present. Unfortunately, our knowledge of the past is not in tune with God's ways for our life and the present reality that we're living in. Manuscripts have said Romans 8.28 could be read this way, God works all things together for good, and God cooperates for good in all things. In both statements, the assurance rests purely on the shoulders of God. It is God who is at work. It is God's plan. It's not our plan. It's not our will. It is God's plan. It is God's will. It is God at work. Paul echoes the same verbiage or spirit found in Genesis chapter 50 when Joseph is standing in front of his brothers. You remember the story? Um, Joseph is sold into slavery, finds himself into Egypt. He has a terrible time in Egypt until eventually he comes to second in command and God has blessed him and used him and worked out and worked through all of his challenges in Egypt. And here he is, second in command, standing before his brothers, his father, and all, of their, and all of his family. And this is what Joseph said to them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but what? But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. You see, when we read the story of Joseph, we look at Joseph and go, wow, man, he's second in command in Egypt. He's got the best land, all the good crops, all the good livestock. He's got it made. Like We forget that he spent a time in jail. We forget that he was thrown into a pit, that his brothers were conspiring to murder him. And if it wasn't for one of his brothers who stood up in his defense, he would have been dead. And yet, in all of this, God works his divine plan. And it's not Joseph's plan, because if it was Joseph's plan, I'm sure he had a much better way in his mind than God's way. But God had a plan. God's intentions are for good, even when we find ourselves in a dark pit or trapped as a slave in a foreign country. There is another false theology in the church today that believes that nothing unfortunate should ever happen to a believer. It is. 
I stare it in the face many times. People who say, I don't know why God is doing this in my life. I don't know why I'm going through this tough time. I'm not, I'm not, I do not know why I have this challenge in my life because I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and it should only be good times, not bad times. Corky made this observation concerning the church. He said, the modern theology of accommodation has made us a truth-resistant people. Paul never said, all things are good. That would be a ridiculous claim in view of both natural tragedies and human atrocities. If that were the case, there might be some of us in this room who would conclude that God does not love me or he's not protecting me. Because I have calamity in my life, or I have hardships in my life, or I'm going through a rough patch. Paul insists in Romans 8.28 that in all things God works together to accomplish what is good for God's people. The issue this morning, the issue of misquoting Romans 8.28 arises when we substitute our idea for good over God's divine plan for good. That's where we misquote it. We often use Romans 8.28 thinking, I've got a plan, and it's good, God, and I'm thankful. I'm thanking you in advance because you're going to do this and this and this and this in my life. And we haven't even considered maybe what God's plan is for our life, and maybe God wants to take us through a tough spot. Maybe God wants to take us through a challenging moment in our life, and he is saying, I have the grace and the power, and I've given you the spirit. You need to stick to my plan because it will bring glory to me, not to you. Our good seeks to eliminate suffering. And avoid uncomfortableness and struggles and grief and misery and heartache. We substitute God's plan with our selfishness to alleviate our present suffering. Paul was clear. God doesn't always spare his people from tragedies. And God doesn't always take us away from illness or adverse circumstances or even shield us from our opponent's persecution because just a few verses later in Romans chapter 8 this is what Paul writes starting at verse 35 he said can anything separate us from Christ's love does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have underline that in your Bible does it mean that God doesn't love me if I have trouble or calamity in my life or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death Paul said this, he goes on in verse 36, he, he quotes Isaiah, as the scriptures, scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day, we are being slaughtered like sheep. Then he goes on to say this in verse 37, no, it does not mean that God doesn't love you if you have calamity in your life, or if you have hardship in your life, or you're going through a tough spot in your life. All of, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Not our victory, but Christ's victory. Then in verse 38, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. And then he said this in verse 39, no power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, say it with me church, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul concludes chapter 8 with some pretty awful situations. 
that a Christ follower may find themselves in. Not exempt from, but actually find themselves in. Rather than promising escape from the horrible, Paul is promising God's sustaining power to provide hope for the afflicted and good for the kingdom of God. Not our good, but a good that glorifies God. How does anyone, how does anyone see the good of God being accomplished beyond our own selfishness? Well, Paul shares two key ingredients from Romans 8.28. He said, first of all, you need to have a love for God, and you need to have a calling from God. Do you have a love for God? Paul writes a lot in the book of Romans about the love of God and how much God loves us. This is a rare moment in Romans 8.28 when he actually says, we are to love God. Do you have a love for God? Do you have a calling from God? If, if we fail to experience the love of God, we will fail to have a love for God. You can't love God without first being loved by God, by first experiencing his love. That's why he writes a lot about this, Apostle Paul does, in the book of Romans, where he says how much God loves us. But we will never be able to love God unless we experience the love of God in our life. And if we do not have a calling from God, Romans 8.28, if you do not have a calling from God, you will most likely cut and run when times get tough. Because your good will never line up with God's good. It never will. Do you love God this morning? Are you called by God? Because Paul said, and we know, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good good of the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. 47-year-old Anthony was riding his Harley Davidson motorcycle down a street, a busy street in Indiana, when he was struck by another vehicle. Anthony later recounted the incident. He said this, I remember it happened. I remember it happening, and I, I didn't quite know what was going on for a split second. And I looked over my left shoulder, and all I saw was her tire and left bumper ready to run over my face. Interesting, though, in the story, both, true story, both drivers attributed the crash to God's will. The driver of the automobile didn't stop, so the police found her a few miles down the street and asked her what her response was to the accident. And she said, well, God told me to let go of the steering wheel and let him drive. She was driving when out of nowhere, she said, God spoke to her and said, take your hands off the wheel. I'm going to drive the car for you. And so I did. By contrast, Anthony recounted, I was inches from that bumper and I just said to myself, today is the day I die. And I just shut my eyes and said, if this is the way God wants to do it, then I guess this is the way that God's going to do it, and I'm okay with it. Both statements exhibit a degree of trust in God. But did you notice the difference between their beliefs? The lady accepted God's power based on purely selfishness. I'm not even going to think about the consequences. God wants me to take my hands off the wheel. I'll do that. The man, Anthony, 
took what was known about God and his sovereignty and gave him glory for what was about to happen next. God, if this is the way it's going to be, then this is the way it's going to be. I trust you. One attempted to force the hand of God. There's the wheel. Take it over, God. And the other recognized God's involvement and said, whatever you want, God, that's the way it's going to be. We can read Romans 8.28 two ways. We can try and force God's hand. Or we can recognize God's involvement in our life and we can give him the glory for whatever may come next. Knowing that he is going to take care of us and look after us. And sometimes, yes, that means we go through a dark valley. And yes, that sometimes means we suffer loss and grief. And sometimes we suffer some hardships in this life that are made by our hands and sometimes not even made by our hands. But what we need to recognize in Romans 8, 28, is that God is in control. 26 and 27, when I didn't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prayed. In those moments when we do not know what to do, we know what the good we want, but the good that we want doesn't always line up with the good that God wants, because the good that God has is glorifying Him and expanding and glorifying His kingdom. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. The kingdom of God is bigger than you. The kingdom of God is bigger than you. Sometimes we get trapped in our, our belief system and in our way that we live out our life in Western civilization, and we think the kingdom of God is all about me and all about what I want and what I think should be done and my good. The kingdom of God is much bigger than you. And we are just part of it because we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we need to allow him to have his way in our life that we need to have a spiritual surrender where we are confidently obedient to his ways and say, God, whatever may come, I've signed up and I trust you. Your way and your will be done in my life. Amen. Surrender to God's ways is a means for not your good, but for the good of the kingdom of God, surrendering to him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning briefly? I'm going to pray in just a second. If you're watching online, I would encourage you to do the same this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you're going, oh, pastor, I've, and I've, I've been misreading Romans 8.28 for a long time. I've, I've been trying to manipulate God for my good rather than recognizing the good of God and the good of his kingdom at work. I've been making the kingdom of God all about me when, when actually it's much, much bigger than, than me. I need to surrender. I need to spiritually surrender everything to him. The good, the bad, the ugly, the hurts, the hang-ups, the challenges need to surrender to him. And I need to take my hands off and go, Lord, whatever may happen, I trust you and I believe in you and I know that you have my best interest at hand. 
And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of his kingdom in his name, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If that's you this morning, I just want you to confess by standing up. This pastor, that's me. I need to spiritually surrender today. I give it all. I just I lay it right out before Jesus Christ. Whatever may happen in my life, here it is. It's it's his. I know that may be may mean some challenging moments ahead, but I'm trusting him that I want to glorify his name and I want his kingdom and his will to be done in my life. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about his kingdom that's you just stand up lots have stood there is no shame in standing this morning it's your declaration your confession father we thank you for those who are standing this morning both in this room and online today we thank you for your tremendous love that you are relentless and you never give up on us we thank you for that hope because i'm sure we frustrate you so many times but we thank you for your love and first and foremost, that we can experience your love in our life. And Lord, because we know your love, it becomes possible to love you and to love others. And we admit this morning that we have made Romans 8.28 sometimes about us and our problems and our struggles and the good that needs to come into our life so that we can escape from the pain and the agony and the turmoil and the challenge. But really, Lord, we've been looking at it the wrong way. It's about you and your will and your kingdom. It's just like that young man who knelt on his knees and said, Lord, look after my family and look after my kids. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Spiritual surrender. Lord, that's our desire this morning, to surrender to you fully, our spirit to surrender our soul, to surrender our mind, to surrender our body, to surrender everything that we have and everything that we ever will be, it's yours. We surrender to you today. Take it, Jesus. May your name be glorified. And we are just honored to be part of your kingdom and your ways. In your name we pray. Lord, for the rest of us in this room and online this morning, we know that we can do better. And we've heard the challenge this morning. And help us not to be selfish in our spiritual journey, but to look to you more and to open ourselves up more to you and to let your Holy Spirit work in and through us so that your Holy Spirit connects our life to the will of God the Father so that Jesus Christ is glorified both now and forevermore. Lord, call us to better, to be better, to do better. For your name's sake and your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.